Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. I'm also the author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and my goal is to decode exactly how to design a life that really matters, because if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. If you're new to the show, take a deep breath. Almost everything is trivial. Only a few things are essential, and that's what this show is all about. My job is to interview, get deep really with authors, entrepreneurs, psychologists, and everyday people to help explore what's essential so that we can eliminate everything else. Through a process of listening, unpacking, and going deep with each guest, we turn each episode into practical advice for intentionally planning and living in order to move forward. If you enjoy this podcast, if it means something to you, then why not suggest it to family and friends and even earn a reward? For the month of December, we're launching a special referral program that both you and your friends, colleagues, co-workers, and more will benefit from. They have a chance to get introduced to the What's Essential podcast, and you can qualify for some exclusive referral rewards as a thank you for sharing it. All the details can be found in the What's Essential podcast description. For this first episode, I asked my followers on Twitter and LinkedIn who I should have a conversation with. I also wanted to talk with someone who has really had an impact on my life. So that's why I was absolutely delighted that when I asked all of you on social media, who should I interview, the most frequent answer, the most popular answer was my wife, Anna. Particular thanks to at Justin Strong, who made this suggestion. Also, Jason Moore at JS Moore Outdoors. And the many people that then participated in that conversation as well, supporting it. People wanted to hear from Anna. And I'm delighted with that because she's the most important person to me. She epitomizes everything that's essential to me. And also, as you will see, she's absolutely key to the birth of essentialism. Without her, there wouldn't be the book. And there wouldn't be this podcast. There couldn't be this podcast. So I'm going to be interviewing Anna as we take you to the very beginning, the birth of essentialism, and also discuss how essentialism has shaped and continues to shape our everyday lives and our everyday decisions. And so with that, let's turn to my discussion with Anna McEwen. All right. Well, here we are. So how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you feeling about this conversation? <laughs> a little nervous. But you don't, know, you don't know quite what we're doing. That would be an accurate assessment, Greg. <laughs> yeah. Is that normal with me? Do, I, do you feel that often or occasionally? I would say often, but I don't feel nervous often. But um, we definitely are quite skilled. Maybe that's an overstatement, but we need agility, a lot of agility. with To handle me. Um I was going to say you and I need agility in, in our life, in our life, and in your career, and so we try and roll with things. Yeah, yeah you're really good at rolling with that, and <laughs> it's amazingly supportive in uh, the work that we're doing. I mean, really, there wouldn't be an essentialism book, and therefore could not be an essentialism podcast uh, without you. I mean, that's like that's a simple fact. Well, that's kind. I think we make a good team. Well, I think we do make a good team. Um, but somebody was just asking me the other day about my writing process for the book. And they said, remember that you wrote that in, in Essentialism about the writing schedule. And I'd forgotten mm -hmm. that was even in there. Mm -hmm. But 
that was 4 a.m. in the morning, I would go out That's to that right. little office and and write yep. and stay there for, I don't know, at least the next six hours, maybe eight yep. hours even. Yep. And I did that for nine months, if I remember right. That sounds about right. Why did you make that sacrifice? Why were you willing to make that trade-off? We both felt that that was what was required for you to have the the mental space and the focus and just the ability to write. I wanted to enable that for you. I believed in the project, in your ability as a writer, and I wanted to make that possible. I wanted to absolutely enable that, not just unselfishly. Um, I mean, sure, there, there are some sacrifices that are required, I think, that both of us try and make for each other to achieve what we hope to achieve. Thinking about this, I suddenly am reminded of another way in which essentialism was born. (laughs) I have shared this story a few times now, but I can't think of any time I've shared it when you and I have been together when I was sharing it. This is, you know, when people say, okay, when, when did essentialism begin? What they mean is tell us the story of when you, Greg, got it all wrong. (laughs) That's what they really mean. And so the situation was that I had received an email asking me to be at a certain client meeting uh, between one and two on Friday. Uh, They said uh, that would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. That's what it said. And I, I have especially since then thought, well, I'm sure they were just joking or that it wasn't like a really serious thing. That's certainly, I certainly I allow that. Yeah. Um, but Thursday comes along and that's when you go into labor. Well, I mean, the actual details of that situation was that I was overdue and I'd never been overdue before. So it was, I don't want to give too many details, I guess, but, um, but it was getting to the point where an induction was looking like that needed to happen. And I felt like the whole time we were even in the hospital, you were agonizing over this because the baby was coming. Yeah. So you knew that this baby was going to be here within a few hours and that you had a meeting the next day. And I don't remember that agonizing. I remember it taking up a lot of our conversation is what it felt like to me. But the next day I go to the meeting to what feels like now to my shame. And afterwards, I remember uh, my colleague said, uh, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. But the look on their faces didn't evince that sort of confidence. Uh, It just didn't seem, I mean, it, it, it wasn't like some home run thing. And even if it has, it's clear uh, to me, to everybody, to anybody who hears the story uh, that I made a fool's bargain, violated something more important for something less important. And what what I always say I learned from it, what I did learn from it is that if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. But what's your side of that story? You know, hindsight is definitely, I mean, they say it's 2020, but we remember things emotionally and, you know, I can't be accurate, yeah. I'm sure. I mean, yeah. this was a long time ago. But I remember my emotions around it. And I wanted you there with me. I did. And I wanted you to want to be with me. And I felt vulnerable. I think for me, when I have babies, it's a vulnerable time. And Mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes for me to advocate 
But I mean, how could I really expect you to understand the complexity of emotions that I was feeling in the moment? You know, um, I think I might have said, no, I want you to make this decision. But it was a very difficult decision for you at the time. It was very difficult for you to discern what the right thing was. And, and you call me an empath. I could understand where you were coming from. I could understand the, the struggle that you were having, the, that there could be real negative consequences of not going to this. And surely I could sacrifice a few hours with you to go do this thing, to support you, you know, so it is complicated for both of us. Mm -hmm. And I need to take some responsibility. You know, if I had been more assertive, if I'd been like, no, you can't go to that meeting tomorrow. I need you here. Even the way you just said that is stronger than you would have had to say it. If you'd simply said, no, don't go to that. Stay here. Yeah. I would have done that. For me, I think it says something about what we were learning still as a couple. And I have a real aversion to pressuring anybody to do anything. Maybe it's because I value freedom so highly because I am particularly sensitive to manipulation. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like to feel like someone's trying to manipulate me. And so there's something in me that just really tries not to do that to you or to my children. And I don't want to be the reason if it's the decision that you regret or that you make unhappy or that makes you unhappy. I want you to make a decision fully responsible, wanting to make that decision yourself. You, you wanted me to prioritize that on my onesie. <laughs> yes. You, you didn't want to have to be the person, the conscience in that moment going, uh, come on, you know. Uh, pick me, right. or pick this, or be here. Yeah. Now, I think, though, I really admire and think that it's a, a something that I have needed to work on to be able to communicate those things. I think that it's important in a relationship to be able to communicate what is important to you and what you need in the relationship. So I am very grateful for the experience, as challenging as it was, as vulnerable as it was. That You're grateful for it now. I am. Really? Yes. How would you have learned it? <laughs> I suppose that's right. You know, you, you, you know, failure teaches. Absolutely. That was a lesson that needed to be learned, that hadn't been learned. Yeah, but that's what begs the question, though, doesn't it? The question is, do you think I've learned since then? D honest answer. Yes. Are you perfect at it? No. <laughs> Am I perfect at what I've been trying to learn from it? No. But... Absolutely, you've learned from it and it has benefited our lives. What are the tangible evidences of that? Putting me on the spot. Yeah, if, if, is, there, is there anything? I mean, it's easy to say that, but, you know, I, I mean, I suppose I'm asking a broader question, which I think people always want to know, even if they don't say it, uh, is, is, is Greg living as an essentialist? You know, and you're the most credible person to answer that question, you know, in, in our life. All right. Well, I mean, yes, Greg is living as an essentialist. I would say that you have a, an example that you like to give about the closet mm -hmm. and keeping a tidy closet. And I don't think that I've met anybody, not that I'm going into everybody's closets, but, <laughs> but your closet is impressive to me. It's so tidy. It is so curated. It really is a a sight to behold. My closet is <laughs> my closet is not at that level. This so, is not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, and and it's interesting because 
I mean, I do talk about that metaphor of the closet and eliminating, you know, everything that's non-essential in the closet and, and how that would apply to life. And so for anyone who's read that or hears that metaphor, uh, when, when I've shared that with them, well, okay, they have the answer now about my closet. But when I hear you say it, I think that's the least important application <laughs> of essentialism. But it's an easy one. It is easy and it's concrete. And I'm not trying to knock your example. No, I'm right. just... I'm just putting myself out there more vulnerably about this because I think, yeah, I mean, organizing your closet's good and metaphorically it's good too. But the question I'm asking is, is, is am I living as an essentialist in my life? Well, we could get right to something you could improve on. <laughs> um, yeah, go on then. And it's not a surprise to you. We've talked about it before and that is trade-off. Trade-off is really difficult. You love to explore and... One of the things I love about you is that you hate it when somebody says you can't do something. I mean, I, I don't love that you hate that, but I, <laughs> I love that you have a kind of optimism about the impossible that many would give up a lot earlier than you to achieve certain things. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, can't I? You know, I mean, that's that's one of it's the a trigger. lovely things about you and it uh, is a trigger no i love you. that you i just think it's it's, <laughs> a, it's such an evidence of how lovely you are that you would frame that in the way that you just did and with that sort of richness uh no it's a trigger <laughs> if somebody says well you it I can't be done you're just it it's um i don't know that it fills me with rage that's not quite right yeah you get a steely look in your eye like Oh, yes, I can. Oh, yes, I don't want to be told it cannot be done. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I just refuse. I certainly don't think it's an entirely good trait. It can be a challenge when it comes yes. to essentialism because... It can be a challenge for us, I mean, especially with time. I think time is where it really becomes a challenge for us because you will want to fit more things into a certain amount of time than I think is possible. And me saying that doesn't help the situation. Yes, because I think oh, you, you're disappointed that we can't do this thing. Right. And so I'm like, yes, we can, <laughs> which is, is exactly opposite of what you're really saying, which is sensibly, wisely. I'd like to make a trade-off. Let's, let's make a trade-off. Yeah. But, but I hear it as, oh, you... Oh, we have to give up on would, this great thing. Yes, you would really love to do this. Well, I can try and make that happen. I will make that happen. Yes. Is there an example <laughs> that comes to mind of where... Either we've done got that right or we've done it wrong when it comes to trade-offs. Well, I mean, it's something that still isn't resolved. Um, that came really easy to you just then. <laughs> I'm I just going to go with that. I thought you were going to be stumped. I just didn't want to overthink it. But I think yeah, horses. And horses is complicated because I have an emotional, I've had an emotional desire to have horses. For as long as I've known you. Yes. This is a very first world problem is yes it? i didn't grow up with horses you didn't grow up no. with horses this was like a dream beyond dream yes the one day yeah. maybe we could do this when i came to america more than 20 years ago i literally had no money at all we have not come from no, frankly that's money. why we're we struggling so much with the horse situation <laughs> because we're complete novices at it we don't have the the history and the knowledge of this is how no, we, we are not horse people. horses no, no. And so my grandfather was a cowboy and uh, in Idaho and Montana, that was where he, I'm embarrassed, I don't even know, wrangled cows, where he herded them, where well, he I gathered them. You can, yeah. can't be asking me to give I you the know. answer. So he was a cowboy and uh, his son, my uncle, uh, owned horses for a while. And oh my goodness, if I could ride them, I'd, 
asked to ride them every time we went to visit him. So whenever I would talk to anyone about owning horses, oh, it's so much work. It's so much work. But I was like, I think that's okay. And I don't mind if my kids have something physically. Physical chore. Yeah, I thought that that would be a benefit as well. So when. Right, because this was our family project. This was my vision. Yes. This is the vision. (laughs) Well, that stuff, but that stuff has come to pass. It has very recently uh, within the last couple of years and the kids work hard and I work hard and I did a lot of the chores in the beginning and then taught them how to do it. And now they do it. And it's relentless. It's um, you can't just leave. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You can't just take off for a weekend. You need to have someone who can take care of them. Um, So it's a lot of responsibility in that sense. And you have taken the lead on this completely. I've been in a support role. Absolutely. And, you know, I would give myself like a B. And very supportive. Very right, supportive. Good. B though. plus? Um, in support and A. <laughs> <laughs> in work. Actually going out there and yeah, doing it. Uh, it's not really your thing. It's, it's not what we've talked about. It's not like no. I haven't done what I said I would it's like, do. like, Greg, when I get the horses... You're, you're gonna go up there every day. No, but the whole the, the dream of it, I have been supportive of. I've been wanting to do it, and and have worked hard to enable this yes. dream to happen. Yes, we have two horses now. Yes, we uh, have a space for them, and now I'm reaching a point where I am not quite sure that this is it's worth it. Yes, yeah. And when I first started bringing that up to you. Because I'm sad about it. I feel a little, failure is probably too strong of a word, but a little like, what what was this for? Did I achieve what we'd hoped? And, you know. And so when I first brought it up to you, you were like, well, no, we can make this work. I think we should still do this. What can we do to make this work? You know? And so every problem that I would bring to you, you would solve. <laughs> mm, like what? Uh, like we needed more fences. Uh, we needed another section of shelter. A shed to store their food. All examples of helping to make this stream continue and be possible. So the well-intended. Yeah, but possibly a sunk cost bias. Ugh, yeah, it's, you know, and the kids aren't like raring to go up there every day. And for the work, it, I am wondering, is it time to move on and to not do this? And we haven't decided yet. But I feel like you've come around to the possibility of not doing it anymore. But it's been a journey where you originally, when I started saying, no, I don't know that we should do this anymore. You're like, we can do this. We can we can make this happen. We can make this work. Yeah, the sunk cost bias was stronger in me than in you. Not because of just the time invested in it and so on, the resources invested in it, but the emotional attachment. Yeah. The dream of it. The romanticism of it. Yeah. You know, you can make something like this happen for you when you have supported me so much in so many ways. What you're saying is it it can be to a fault because actually what you're really saying is help me free myself from this to, to be okay with <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. Let me feel sad. Yeah. So it can be behind me. Yes. Yeah. I want to be sad about not having them. <laughs> yeah. I want to get past I want, that. Yeah, I want to process this and, and, and hopefully achieve a sort of freedom. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you... Cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. So I want to jump forward now to another way in which you've been key to the, the birth of essentialism. And that was the day that Tina and Talia and the whole team at Crown call me on the phone. Oh, yeah. Tell, tell, tell us about that moment. When yeah. you found out your book was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but what? that sounds just, now that just sounds like I'm saying, yay for me. No, but- that was such a magical moment. That was a, that was a dream that you and I had shared. The, the thing I remember about that moment in, the, uh, in our room together was that we screamed. Yeah. Both of us. Oh, yeah. Spontaneously. <laughs> lots of screaming, lots of hugs, few tears. It was symbolically way more important than just, hey, great, you, you know, this yeah. uh, badge of honor, mm-hmm. this little name, the little thing. It was, it was so a sense of completion of the last chapter that had been multi-year process. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever something like that happens, when you feel like you're on an errand, on a mission, and we're on it together, and then it happens, it's not just the elation of, oh, you reached the mountaintop. It's it's the feeling that the other mountain ahead of you can also be reached. The Mm -hmm. other things that seem impossible now seem just implausible. I think that's a gift of yours. (laughs) <laughs> what is just your vision, you know, and your excitement about achieving the impossible. I wouldn't say that that's my superpower at all. But speaking for a moment though about your superpowers, I mean, as you say, well, those, those aren't, those aren't, that isn't your superpower. And I sort of reflect on that. I think, yeah, that's true. You used the word empath before, which I'm not sure is a term everybody would know, but you understand the meaning of it as soon as you hear the term empath, right? It's the deep understanding these multifaceted emotional circumstances, what people are experiencing, how they're feeling and feeling it with them and and sensing what they might well be thinking and feeling. And your ability to do that has has uh, has always been impressive to me and and is a gift. And I've felt it towards me. I've felt it towards 
the, the children. I felt it in almost every analysis that you've made over these, uh, it's not quite 20 years yet, but 20 years this, this August uh, since we've been married. And I, I, with so many interactions and conversations, you can see and sense the nuance of what they might be feeling and what might be going on at, at these multiple levels. You know, I don't know, maybe, maybe my training in theater helped with that, but I just, uh, I think it's so important to be slow to judge and understanding that there's just so much going on in everyone's life. There's so much uh, that we don't know. There's so many possibilities for why someone said what they said or did what they did. And it's important to strive to be compassionate. And with our children, I, I mean, one of the very first things I realized with our first was who, this child is very, very different from me. Yeah. Like, who is this little person? Because <laughs> I mean, that is really true. And it's been true as she's even grown. Yeah. Right? And now she's a teenager. Yeah. You, you know, you have really different temperaments. Yes, very different. And I think that could have been a source of conflict in our relationship. And at times, you know, it is challenging. It's not like, oh, I know what to say and how to respond and, you know, perfectly to all of the, <laughs> all of the developmental you know, oh, I think you, along. I think you deal with that really, really but, well, though. Oh, well, uh, thank you. I, I, I think do you deal, try I think you deal very, with that better than I do. Well, I think you and her are more similar. Actually. Yeah, I, th I think that's um, right. There's a word you haven't used in all of that description, but I feel like it's key for what brought us together in the first place, mm -hmm. and then has been key in our worldview towards our children, and then literally towards the everybody world, else. Yeah. And that is the sense that. Each of us has a unique and essential mission in life. Yeah, that definitely brought us together, I feel like, in, in an odd way, <laughs> you know? Well, so we should, we, we, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that we should go through the entire story here. I'm sure well, I, think, I think you could summarize it by... Go on, then. Why don't you do that? What brought you to America and what was going on in my life at the time and how those two things informed each other. Yeah. What was going on in your life at the time? Uh, in my life, I was at university getting my undergraduate and the process to deciding what my undergraduate was, was actually quite painful. I really wanted to do something and felt like I needed to do something, I think in the humanitarian kind of realm of things, like be a nurse or something, some way that would bless people's lives. And yet I kept feeling drawn to acting and I had done some theater in my youth, um, not a ton, but I'd done some and it was really enjoyable. And I was take, I just thought for fun for an elective, I'll take a, an acting class. And my professor was amazing. Barda Heiner. I just love her to death. And I made some good friends there and, you know, through a, a series of soul searching and pondering and frankly, prayer, I took this decision really seriously. And then I, I felt guided and I felt a mission about getting my degree in acting. And then someone suggested I audition for the music dance theater program. I thought, well, why not? I'll just give it a shot. And, um, and I made it in. I couldn't believe it. I just felt excited. I felt right. I felt mission driven in, in pursuing this. And I thought there's, there's got to be a way to bless lives this way too. And, um, and so I, you know, took that leap of faith and, 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 went ahead and, and got my degree in it. And it was not easy. There was so much rejection. And I got the question all the time, what are you going to do with that? And um, I didn't know. 
but I knew that it was what I was supposed to be doing and that things would open up, that this was the path I was supposed to be on, even though I didn't really know where it was going specifically. I knew that I should develop these talents. I should continue to audition. I should, you know, try and make a career of it. Yeah, exactly. And and meanwhile, so we didn't know each other at all through no. this, but we were going through a similar wrestle. Mine, I come to the United States. I was visiting different friends. Somebody put me in touch with Jerry Lund and I went and met with him. And then at the end of this meeting, he says, oh, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should come and help me with this, uh, be on the consultation committee for this curriculum that we've been talking about. And I never did that. Uh, but the question had curious and powerful force about it. And so as I left his office, it's dusk outside and everybody's leaving for the day. And I grab a piece of paper and I just brainstorm, what would you do if you could do anything? And what I notice when I look at that list is not what I've written down, but what I haven't written down. Uh, law school is not on the list. I love this story. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying you've heard it before. <laughs> but I do. I love this story. And so law school you know, suddenly becomes a question mark. And I, I wasn't loving my experience there, but I was at law school in England. And so, you know, it's still what, what do you do about it? So I call my parents and my mother answers, uh, fortunately. And she says, well, listen, I think you better talk to dad. And he comes on the phone. After he listened, he said two things. And normally when I share this story, I just share one of them. But he said, son, do what is right and let the consequence follow. To thine own self be true, which is a hybrid from two different sources. One of them, a hymn, a children's song. And uh, the other from Hamlet, because all Englishmen quote Shakespeare. Anyway, the short of it is law school's out. I mean, what was in was teaching and writing, but that's in a sense a placeholder for what the real thing was, which was, you know, mission or bust. Follow your essential mission in life and nothing else. And so I, I went back to England, didn't go back to law school. I just left and started applying to University of America, applied six months late, I had a whole summer where I just started writing and researching and from that point was born. I say that's when it was born, but really the desire was already in me. I mean, that's the thing. As you talk about our children and our own journey too, I felt that from so young. And that's part of the challenge in discovering what your essential mission in life is, or to even discern what is essential. Because sometimes I think it's so familiar to a person. It's like that old phrase, right? Fish discover water last, is that you don't even notice it. This is just how life is. So you, it's like you dismiss it out of hand. Oh, well, that can't, you know, that's nothing special. That's not, you know, I've got to go do something serious. Look what everybody else is doing. I should do what other people are doing. I should be a, I should be a lawyer. That's a sensible thing. That keeps your options open. I got to teach and write. So that was, it wasn't like that was the birth exactly, but it was the manifestation of it. It was like the first time I was making a proper trade-off in order to pursue it. And that led us to the same university. I went and wrote um, 200 columns for the Here's university paper. newspaper. <laughs> and uh, of those 200, uh, how many were published? One. They canceled it after the first day, <laughs> which is not really a great beginning in one's teaching and writing uh, journey. <laughs> but I read it. But you, re but, that, but you read it, but I didn't know that at that moment. I know. I felt so oddly giddy reading it and felt silly because I knew nothing about you. 
I mean, they had a little introductory article talking about you having quit law school and, and coming to university in America. And, and that just resonated with me. I was like, yes, I understand that. I feel that in my own life. And I just didn't know that I'd ever marry you, but it, or marry you, that I ever meet you. I didn't know if my paths would ever cross, but I think I went home and wrote about it in my journal because I felt like this was something I needed to record. We didn't know each other still, but there was something n noticeable, again, to literally write it down, right? Noteworthy, yeah. literally. Another one of my roommates gave me the paper a few weeks later and had me read an article and I read about you in it. Coincidentally, we were working at the same training institute yes. and... Uh, Really what happened for me, from my point of view, is you had said to me now in person when we had met that you felt a resonance, a sense of a, alignment that life is a mission mm -hmm. and an essential mission and a unique mission, that you felt that yourself yep. suddenly came with greater credibility to me as mm -hmm. I see that the article in paper is about you being selected as the understudy for Bell in the National Tour of Beauty and the Beast. That's right. It's funny how things can change. Colin, why do you say that? What does that mean? My resume was still quite sparse, I guess is the word. And then all of the sudden, this opportunity came. And it's just, I don't, know, I don't know, a testament to me of pursuing things that you feel right about when everyone else is wondering why the heck you're doing it and making the sacrifices you're making. But you still feel that this is right. And eventually things happen. Yeah. There's a, there's a principle of uh, build up and breakthrough. Yeah. Sometimes it's logical and you see a path and, you know, like to become a doctor, there's a very clear path, but with other things, you just don't know when that moment's going to come. Yeah. And I, I would, everything. I would argue probably in, in more circumstances than not, the path is not clear. Mm -hmm. If, especially if what you want is to pursue a mission in life, mm -hmm. an essential mission, especially if you are trying to you know, do what you came here to do, then you will find yourself, at least this has been definitely true for me, on the path less traveled by. Yep. And so as a result, you don't know how to go from point A to point B. No, and sometimes you're looking around going, it's pretty lonely here. <laughs> is this, you know, no one else is doing this. Is this really the right path? Yeah, you know? nobody else is doing this, <laughs> which is part of the point because it's a unique mission. But in the moments in between the breakthroughs, you're in the build-up phase. And, and, and once the breakthrough happens, it's like this is what the overnight success story looks like, is that people just notice the breakthrough. Yeah. Oh, they've been discovered. Oh, they've been this. Oh, this thing has happened. Mm -hmm. As if it just did blossom out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But really, there has been build-up and quiet, steady small and simple ways just going and keeping on going and keeping on going. And then suddenly something happens. Uh, this was a suddenly something happening yeah. out of this consistent journey that you were on. And the first year of our marriage was me traveling with you, yep. you know, following right. you yeah. to 24 different cities and, you know, all over North America. And it was this great crash course in Americana for me. Mm. I got to see you perform as Belle 30 times, I would think. Mm -hmm. And myself, we're getting to watch that, and then, and then, of course, every night I'm out there. I was one of the people selling the merchandise. The merchandise. I mean, there's a there's a hierarchy in in theater. <laughs> I don't know quite what the full top looks like, but I know I was at the very bottom of it. <laughs> but I think that formed a sort of foundational experience that now is still manifest 
with our children and trying to help them find their essential mission in life and to remove all non-essentials, including us. I mean, just today in our little family uh, you know, meeting this morning, you were talking to them about that exact thing, that our job is to, is to help get them ready to leave and, and to want to leave when it's time, you know, to want to get on to the next yeah, phase. We have of, three teenagers there. We're entering that phase where I need to be more of a support than a driver. I feel like this leads naturally to the essence, really the essence of essentialism, right? The very center of the center. I mean, we feel that the work of parenting is effectively finished when our children can follow the voice of conscience. And so our job is not to tell them everything. Like at the beginning, you're, you're sort of doing more of that because they're less capable. But at every possible turn, it's to remove that and instead create an environment and a culture. And my heavens, you have done such a good job at doing this. Mm-hmm. The, an environment that allows them to grow into that clarity so that they can themselves set goals that they feel uniquely pulled towards, drawn towards it. They have a gravitational pull to do those things. And that's our job. I think that's universally applicable. Essentialism isn't saying no to everyone and everything without thinking about it. That's like the first count of it. Definitely not. I Uh, mean, one of the very first things in your book is explore. That is such an important thing that needs to happen to be able to discern what you are choosing. With my own children, I want to explore who they are. I want them to explore what their interests are and what sparks joy, you know, to use a word from Marie Kondo. I, I think I really like her philosophy with organizing. And I think there's something about that in, in organizing one's own life is what sparks joy. And I mean, I, I, I do hear us and recognize we, we are speaking from a place of, of privilege where we have a lot of options. But I still think that what sparks joy is a question anyone can ask. And while options might be seemingly limited, uh, by following that, by trying to to do those things and, and do the things that will take you to where you are hoping to be is something anyone can do. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. This idea of what essentialism isn't. It's not just saying no to everything. That's noism. Mm-hmm. A different kind of book. This is about pursuing what really matters. You know, a lot of people get caught up on the elimination thing, which I completely agree that elimination is important. That's part of the process. And I, I do emphasize it. We, we need to make trade-offs. We need to rid ourselves of the of the other things that get in the way. Well, especially in a world where the stuff is being shoved at us constantly. Yeah, we're being bombarded. We are being bombarded. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just this last week, I remember on one of the days just feeling flooded with all the noise. There's a lot of fear right now. There's a lot of panic right now. There's a lot of uncertainty. We have no control of many of the things that are going on right now. And and I felt this awareness that I was feeling I was working hard and we were communicating, we were were talking about things, but I just felt myself, it was harder and harder to really hear that calm guidance that this is the right way. You know, so essentialism is 
doing the right things in the right way at the right time. And so the price is primarily pushing out all the other noise, all the other voices to be able to hear that most essential voice that carries you through. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is a timeless and timely principle and practice that in good times and bad, in relatively certain times and in times of just crazy complexity, uncertainty, and so on, volatility, it's the same principle. In times when we have had no money at all, mm-hmm. in times where we have had masses of student debt and no money at all, yep. <laughs> times when the children were little and tiny know, everyone areas. Was sending their kids to preschools and sports and music and we couldn't afford any of those things. And I was panicking going, oh my goodness, are we? am I too late? Can we not? We're going to be behind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for a lot of people listening to this, I mean, there's such a huge range of experiences right now. The heartbreaking situation where so many people are, I mean, literally in food banks for the first times in their lives, people who've Previously, maybe we're living paycheck to paycheck who now have lost that paycheck and have no certainty as to what comes you know, next. Many millions of people suddenly on unemployment benefits that, that weren't before. Plus, you've got some people on the other, maybe on the other end of this spectrum where they're, they, they actually have full employment and so on. In that sense, they're OK, but they still are now for the first time working from home. You know, first time homeschooling, they've got all of this uncertainty, too. And I suppose what I'm asking you and I'm asking me, too, is, is to what extent does this element of essentialism, this core tenet of it, apply across the board? Does it apply? Or is it really just a place of, yeah, it's fine for the privileged, but it's, it's not okay for everybody else? Well, of course, I, I believe that it does apply. I can only speak from my own experience, um, and that is limited. Um, but when our children were young and we didn't have money, things were stressful and tight. I think that was a time when I started reading to them. It became a really beautiful habit. You know, you might look at that and go, that's not, that's not essential. And, you know, maybe it isn't, but it made all the difference. It was something that drew drew our family together when we didn't have much. And that brought in voices of simpler times, some of them, voices of wisdom, heroes, aspiration, humor, adventure, doing hard things, these mentors from these books. And I just believe wherever we are, if we do the best with what we have, we will get more out of it than we put in. And we will be guided as we listen, as we're able to clear out the voices that are competing for our minds, for our time, for our resources, for our brains, you know, that we will be guided to do what's essential and that those things will lift us to a higher place. And if I had to summarize like the most important learning from the last couple of years of our life, I would say gratitude is is there. Maybe maybe the most important. I think maybe for my whole life. I mean, there were times before we ever met where gratitude changed my life. There's so many lessons to pull from this, but one that I feel like I've been able to articulate recently was this. If you focus on what you lack, you lose what you have. If you focus on what you have, 
you lose what you lack. Everybody's had experiences that were uncertain, stretching, challenging, unexpected. Everybody right now is dealing with something and many things. And so I, I just feel like this idea of gratitude in all things, for all things, believing that every experience you know, can be for you, not just happening to you, is particularly powerful principle relevant right now. It's, it, it's like the essential thing right now. If you can focus on what you're grateful for, then it will generate positivity around you. You can create that positivity right now, and that can generate the same kind of magic, even in difficult times, help make the pivot faster, help make the shift to what opportunity is here clearer than before. I think there's no end to the power of gratitude. I'm not saying it's a cure-all exactly. I mean, I know there are traumatic things that people go through. You're not saying gratitude is a quick fix. No, and not the only thing ever needed. I think it's pretty close. Might be the closest thing we have. Yeah. To, to a quick fix and a cure-all. Well, certainly with the normal human challenges of life. Mm. I've noticed with our children, we've been instituting a policy recently where it's fine to complain, but every time you complain, you have to say something you're thankful for afterwards. Mm-hmm. I remember Jack one time complained <laughs> about something and I said, okay, well, that's fine. You can complain, but now you're going to say something you're thankful for. And grumpily, he said, Fine. I am thankful for seven grains of sand. <laughs> that is what he said. And then he complained again a moment later. So he had to do it again. The, the other children were there too. And he said, okay, fine. I am grateful for six grains of sand. And here's the thing. And he kept doing that random numbers of, of grains of sand. <laughs> and he just thought it was, just, he thought it was so clever. He was sort of delighted with it because he knew he could do it forever. Uh, here's the thing about gratitude. But it, it made everyone laugh. That's what I'm saying, is that when you're grateful, even when it's rumpy gratitude, it's so powerful, it changes the mood. I, I have yet to see this not be true. I've had, I've had the children sometimes go, you know, I'll say, okay, right, we're all going to say three things we're thankful for. And I've had them go, oh, I'm so grateful the dad wants to play that dumb gratitude game right now. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. It changes the feeling. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful thing. That is, uh, that is what I've learned. And, and, and right now I'm, I'm so amazed at how quickly it shifts things. So normally I don't, I say nothing is a quick fix. Nothing's a cure all, but it's pretty close. And, I, and as people are trying to, to re have a rebirth in their lives, right now, right? As they're trying to figure out, the whole world is asking this question, what's essential now? I've never seen anything like the number of people being confronted with that reality. As everyone's doing that, I think this principle is like right there. This is what will give us the energy and the insight to be able to do that work. Mm. Give us a final word. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) I think it's within everybody's ability to discover what is essential to them. I think it takes time. I think sometimes it, it, you already know. I, I think that we don't give ourselves enough credit and that we don't always listen to that voice inside of us, to the things that we really do know or really do believe because the voices of others are so loud sometimes and 
I know that certainly I've, I've found a lot of confusion sometimes in all the voices out there. There's so many opinions, but I think that we really do know what is uh, essential for us and that if we take the time to find that out and to prioritize it, that we'll have that peace and confidence that we're doing what really matters. This is Anna McEwen, the most essentialist person in our home, the true enabler of book, now this podcast, and many other things that I feel sure will still be built as we turn this conversation into a movement. Of course, the most essential person in my life, you embody everything that matters most to me, a person of great wisdom. I am delighted to have had this conversation. I am delighted <laughs> for anybody to have heard this and to be able to have a sense of what the journey has been to this point. I, I really do sort of think this, what we've talked about, is like the birth of essentialism. Mm. So thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, I want to remind you, suggest to you to share it with friends and family in a way that you can earn a reward. For the month of December, we will be launching a special referral program, as I mentioned at the beginning, that both you, your friends, colleagues, co-workers can benefit from. They have a chance to be introduced to the What's Essential podcast, and you get exclusive rewards for doing it. It's a good win-win. All the details can be found in the What's Essential podcast description. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast, or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.